As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. This is The Red Line, where we interview three geopolitical experts on one big subject shaping the news both here and overseas. And I'm your host, Michael Hilliard. As I write this script today, many in the media are holding their breath, watching the buildup of Russian assets on the borders of Ukraine, and as always, talks of World War III are stirring up again. Media outfits are reporting even the most minute details, like one trainload of tanks repositioning to the Ukrainian border. At certain times, my entire Twitter feed is wall-to-wall with certain Russian groups conducting what is pretty routine maneuvers in the southwest of Russia. Whilst at the exact same time, Russia is actually repositioning large numbers of troops elsewhere, even moving some of its nuclear arsenals. But yet, no one seems to be giving this front even one-tenth the coverage of the almost annual now exercises Russia conducts on the east border of Ukraine. The main reason for this lack of coverage, though, may be the fact that it's quite far from the European heartland. In fact, it's 7,500 kilometers eastward of the Ukrainian front line. The area I'm referring to is the Russian Pacific coast. And from experience, I can tell you even a lot of diehard Russia analysts tend to ignore this theater of Russia. This is not a new trend, though. Russian history has always been highly Eurocentric for centuries, and even Russian leaders themselves mostly focus their attention in the so-called Russian heartland, the area west of the Ural Mountains. This is where the majority of the people live, where the majority of the economy is. Russian troops are completely ready to defend this homeland, and have logistics trains to back it up. Russian troops stationed in Moscow can be deployed via train to St. Petersburg in four hours, the Estonian and Latvian borders in six hours, the Ukrainian front lines in 8 hours, they can even reach the Caucasus by train in 18 hours. In stark contrast to this, Vladivostok, the main city on the Russian Pacific coast, is a 7-day journey by train, potentially longer in bad weather. And with these logistical problems looming, this area is said to become even more important to defend as the rest of the world pivots its attention toward the Indo-Pacific. Russian troops firing shells in the Kamchatka Peninsula may have to be supplied from factories up to 10 time zones away, making conducting warfare incredibly difficult for the Russians. In contrast, though, a hypothetical front line in Vladivostok is only 600 kilometers from the American bases in Japan, only 500 kilometers from the South Korean bases, and just 50 kilometers from the Chinese border. The Russian cavalry has a long way to travel before it can ride in to save the day. So how is Russia looking to address this? And with the world pivoting towards Asia, how will Russia seek to reassert itself in its own backyard? Well, to help us tackle that question, we turn to our first guest. Part 1. The Forgotten Front Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Well, I mean, Asia traditionally has not been the core focus of Russia's policies. It's been very much a Eurocentric uh, country, both economically and in security terms. But 
Asia has been growing and the Asia Pacific region has been the focus of, of this attention um, in Russia, I would say really over the last 20 or 30 years, but particularly in the last 10 years where it's become a key part of Russia's policy un, under the pivot to Asia, which President Putin has been supporting. And there are a variety of different elements to this. Part of it is to actually engage in the Asia Pacific as a rising economic region. And uh, Russia has sought, particularly in, in terms of selling arms and energy to the region, to expand its presence there. But secondly, it's sought to use its engagement in the Asia-Pacific region to balance its worsening relations in Europe and with the transatlantic community. But this, despite this effort, I mean, the actual gains that Russia has made remain relatively modest in the region. Its presence is a niche one, I, I would say. Just a kind of final point on this, I think that for Russia still... From a security perspective, uh, Northeast Asia does remain uh, an important aspect, not least because it does use that region to house its um, its nuclear submarine fleet. And so, of course, as part of its nuclear deterrence, this region remains an important part of Russian strategic doctrine. Neil Melvin is the Director of International Security Studies at the Royal United Services Institute, specialising in the emerging security dynamic in Russia and the Middle East. And we're thrilled to have on the program today. Well, Russia sought to try and develop a balanced policy across the region. So what it wants to do, I think, is, is pursue a kind of multipolar strategy. So it's engaged both the traditional allies in the region from uh, the Soviet years, so countries like Vietnam, the non-aligned countries, uh, Indonesia, and in particular, India, which has been a long-standing both Soviet and Russian partner, but the key country in recent years has been China, and that's just really been for two reasons. One is that the rise of China has meant that Russia has become much more closely aligned with the economic uh, opportunities of, of the Chinese market, particularly just being able to sell energy resources and other kind of natural resources, most recently becoming quite a, a major supplier of uh, grain to, to the Chinese market. But secondly, as China has risen, and it's become uh, engaged in a confrontation with the US and many US allies, Russia has found itself allying with uh, China on quite a few issues, not in a formal alliance, but nonetheless, there is a convergence of interests there that's found the two countries increasingly coordinating and lining up on similar positions internationally. I want to start this interview by laying out on the table just how difficult it is for Russia to maintain this huge amount of land. For an idea for people listening on how far away the Russian Pacific coast is from Moscow, it's a six and a half day train ride to get to Vladivostok. From the Russian heartland to Vladivostok is the same distance from New York to Warsaw, the capital of Poland. It is seven time zones away. And Russia has to keep it supplied with everything from postal services to household gas. So can you take us through the logistical nightmare it is to maintain a country that is just frankly so spread out? I mean, you're absolutely right. Russia is, is a vast country and the eastern territories, of course, are you know up, up to 10 time zones different away from Moscow. So uh, there has been a concern in Moscow that uh, they might uh, lose control of, of these eastern territories. I think that's, that's probably exaggerated, but there are nonetheless are serious difficulties. Uh, and these, I think, are, are of uh, two types. One is just the, the lack of significant infrastructure linking the Far East to the rest of Russia. Obviously, much of this was built during the Soviet times and maintaining it has proved very difficult. So one of the main reasons that that Russia has sought to pivot to Asia is actually to use that pivot to develop its Far Eastern region by connecting the resources of the Far East to the Asian markets and then looking for investment and development of the region. But secondly, there's a very small population now in the Far East. It, it was It's always been relatively, uh, relatively low numbers in, in a vast area. But since the collapse of the Soviet Union, there's been a, a significant out-migration. Young people have left the region, and so Russia's been struggling to maintain a significant population in that area. 
So the, the, the pivot to Asia is really a hope, I think, from Russia that, that it can leverage uh, the new opportunities of Asia to, to reestablish uh, its, its links, you know, its stronger links to the Far East. But this hasn't really panned out so far. There's been quite relatively little foreign investment in the Far East, primarily because of the very difficult business environment in Russia for foreign investors. So Russia is now looking to try and put some its own money into this. But I mean, these are vast distances. It costs a huge amount of money. And of course, there are now alternatives. So while Russia is prioritizing uh, the uh, the railway, uh, China has built its own railway links through Central Asia to European markets. Uh, the, the maritime route through Suez Canal uh, is, of course, the, the biggest commercial route. And even Russia itself is looking at the Arctic sea routes. Uh, as something it wants to promote. So there's quite a lot of competition to the Trans-Siberian route, and it's really struggling, I think, to maintain uh, a significant market share in that context. So the average Russian citizen who lives out near Petropavlovsk or Vladivostok, do they get their daily supplies from the Asian markets, or does all of this stuff have to come all the way from the Russian heartland near Europe? Well, I mean, they, they do get some things uh, from Moscow, but uh, primarily they've uh, been supplied now by the Asian markets for many years. So cars and sort of any kind of manufactured goods tend to come in from, well, initially Japan, but increasingly China now. If you go to the Far East, uh, it's very stark that uh, the cities and towns in the Russian Far East are really, I mean, they were established in the late 19th century. They've grown uh, somewhat uh, since then. There was a bit of investment during the Soviet times, but there's been relatively little investment in the subsequent decades. But just across the border in China, of course, you've got places that used to be seen by the Russians as rather backward, essentially these rural villages, and they've they've just boomed in the last 20 years. So a big place like Blagoveshensk on the, um, the Amur River on, on the Russian side, uh, you know, a significant Russian town, suddenly opposite it, it is a vast new de- developed uh, Chinese urban area that used to be a village. And, and of course, this is really shifting the economic center of gravity of, of the Russian Far East into the Asia Pacific region and away from European Russia. So the Russian Navy has five main fleets. The Northern, the Baltic, the Black Sea, the Caspian, and the Pacific Fleet. How seriously does Russia take its Pacific Fleet as compared to, let's say, the Northern or Black Sea fleets? Well, Russia has been putting a lot of money into military modernization. Uh, much of this is about uh, it's the army, and, and that, that you know, as a continental uh, military power, that, that remains the focus, the modernization of nuclear forces. There has been some investment in the Navy, but there's been a series of priorities here. First of all, Russia is not really a blue water navy in many ways anymore. The Soviet, under the Soviets, they did have that capability. Uh, the navy has been cut back and is primarily really a coastal defense force. And within those priorities, the northern fleet has been the main one since that is that is the bastion force around its nuclear forces, which are, are positioned in the Arctic. So actually protecting those nuclear forces has been the priority. Second has been the modernization of the Black Sea fleet, where Russia has uh, you know, seized Crimea, and this has become uh, a basis for power projection in the Black Sea and into the East Mediterranean. And only thirdly, I would argue, are its Pacific forces beginning to be modernized. Uh, and here it's, it's not really to build an, an ocean-going fleet. Again, it's to protect Russian uh, strategic nuclear forces, uh, which tend to stay close to the Russian coastal areas there in, in, in these closed-off maritime spaces. But what I think the particular significance is around giving new capabilities to their existing platforms, and this is primarily... Uh, new missile systems that are ex- extending the range within which Russia can actually sort of exert coercion into the Pacific. An, an interesting development is they are, I think, uh, doing some things with China now, which are new, so that they've done some joint patrols which have gone out from the traditional coastal areas uh, between China, uh, between Japanese islands and into the Pacific. And the Russians have even launched uh, one mission where their, their fleet 
uh, sailed close to Hawaii. But I think this is more a signaling than than suggesting that they have a ability to sustain those kind of operations over the long term. And how would you sum up the relationship at the moment between Russia and China in this region of the world? Particularly as a little while ago, the Chinese embassy in Vladivostok quietly shared a map of parts of eastern Russia belonging to China. Does Moscow worry that China may eventually lay historical claims to some of their eastern territories? There are these deep-seated anxieties uh, around un, sort of the, these land claims. Um, so, of course, in the Chinese nationalist rhetoric, they do see that this, this land was seized by Russia unfairly, they feel. But I think at the official level, there's very little support for this at the moment. And, and while the Russia and China relationship is to some degree defined by a shared opposition to the United States, there's also a much deeper set of, in, of interests. And they've been working really since the Gorbachev era in the late 80s to try and build a better relationship. And the territorial issue has been the core of that. So I would argue that the basis of the Russia-China relationship is actually an agreement to settle those disputed uh, issues. And that when they had the 2001 uh, Russia-China Friendship Treaty, that, that really was the culmination of a protracted negotiation to settle the border finally and agree the demarcation of those territories between Russia and China. So I think under the current governments of, of the two countries, there is no desire at all to open up that issue. And there is a much broader set of interests that are more important. And in particular, I'd say this is around the, the provision of resources to China, and in particular, the energy market. So Russia has become a, a substantial supplier to the Chinese energy market. And, and there's recently been a, a further plans to open a second gas pipeline, bringing further Russian gas into the Chinese market. So I think those those kind of economic interests trump any potential uh, claims around uh, former territory. With the Arctic ice sheets beginning to melt, we're starting to see increasing traffic through the Northeast Passage, the route from East Asia into the Russian Arctic, along the Russian Arctic coast, and then down into Europe, as it's slightly quicker than going around and through Suez. With the logistical traffic having to travel right past Russia's Pacific bases, do you think we're going to start to see Russia take its Pacific fleet much more seriously as this pass continues to open up? I mean, there's there's a long-term plan to develop the Northern Sea Route and, and to you know, make the Arctic routes uh, much more viable. And you can see a gradual increase in these. And of course, th that will come to the benefit of, of Northeast, um, Northeast Asia, including, of course, the Russian cities there. It's still relatively small amounts. Um, and there are, there are quite a lot of competition, as I mentioned before. I mean, the, the Suez route, while it is longer, of course, does have some significant advantages because it is, it's an established route. It's also taking in goods both ways, uh, there's a lot of markets along that route. Whereas if, if you go into the Arctic region, it's really um, you know th there's not much uh, there's not much trade within the region itself. It's just a, a kind of point to point transit, so so that you can lose actually money on that basis. But I think that there's a kind of a niche opportunity for Russia to gradually develop that market. There are some some big questions, though, I think, in the future, whether this is, you know, how economically viable this is going to be. One of, one of those, of course, is that there are now substantial investments in land routes taking place, uh, which may also undercut the Northern Sea Route. And as the Indo-Pacific region itself becomes a much more developed economic market, it may be that there's actually less less demand to move things from from the region to, to the European markets, which are, which may become relatively less important. It may, you know, the focus could be, could be increasing on Indian Ocean as the main developing market. And of course, there, there is now this desire to decouple from the Chinese market uh, and diversify as a result of growing security concerns in, in the North Atlantic community about China. So again, there may be less trade going forward than perhaps people have anticipated. Russia actually has a fairly respectable series of connected air bases out here in this region, including bases like Bolshoi Air Base in Kabovorsk. What sort of aerial forces does Russia prioritize out here in this region as compared to, let's say, Europe, where the flight times are much shorter? I mean, it, it does have a significant air power, but uh, it, 
most of its most modernized forces are on the European side, where, of course, it's facing NATO, which is a much more significant military threat at the moment. Um, But there are regular maritime patrols that Russia is doing, and these have become, I would say, increasingly more assertive, particularly as regards Japan. Russia is quite worried that as a result of the growing confrontation with China, that Japan is going to start to take on on board a modernization of its military, including perhaps putting um, uh, maybe even U.S. missiles on on Chinese uh, on Chinese territory, and that of course would have implications for for Russia and Russian strategic forces in the region. So it started to assert uh, a stronger military presence through these air patrols. Uh, And they've even done them together with the Chinese on occasion. The country that Russia has always had a very close relationship in this region of the world is India. And I think India is often overlooked in the conversation when it comes to Russia's Eastern doctrines. What do you think the relationship will be like between India and Russia going forward in this region of the world? India has been a key market for Russian armaments, particularly uh, in the post-Soviet period when Russia struggled to have significant opportunities and India became a loyal supporter and purchaser of Russian armaments. As China has risen, India has also become a key country for Russia to try and balance China's interests uh, in the region. And so Russia tries to pivot between the two countries and even play this role of mediating between India and China to, to magnify its own diplomatic significance. But this is becoming a more and more difficult balance for Russia because it's selling weapons really to both sides now who who are fighting each other on on the border. And so there is a growing tension between uh, its commitments to China and to India. And so this really reflects the broader strategic problem that, that Russia has across the region, which as the region does become more confrontational and as more and more countries are looking to balance China's role, Russia's finding it difficult to maintain this position of neutrality. It's under pressure to choose sides. And and looking ahead, of course, this pressure is going to increase. And Russia does not want to do that. It doesn't want to be forced to either go for India or or for China. Uh, And the the result, of course, that that is is it may well risk being further marginalised if it doesn't make that choice at some point. Although Russia prioritises the Western Front quite heavily at the moment, do you think that might change over the next 10 to 15 years and Russia may start to prioritise the Pacific in certain parts of its military apparatus? There's no doubt that Russia wants to become more involved in the region uh, and it's putting in quite a lot of effort. The biggest challenge, I think, is that everyone else is becoming more interested in the region. And so the competition is increasing substantially. And some of these issues around the creation of security blocks, the Quad, AUKUS, Russia is starting to feel that there's a risk it may actually be pushed out of the region and it's confined more onto the Eurasian landmass. And this is the big strategic concern of Russia is that in future years, the emergence of a US-led coalition of countries across the Indo-Pacific will mean that that Russia will be a marginalized country in the region. So it's, it's trying to engage much more in, in diplomacy and build up its economic ties. It's been reasonably successful, I would say, diplomatically, but economically, it remains really a, a very marginal player, except in the areas of energy and armaments. But of course, the future of energy for Russia is a big challenge because it, its core business is around hydrocarbons. As we've seen now with, with COP26, you know, there's such a push away from that. The, the, the bell is already starting to toll for Russia's ability to extract value from that. So the, there's probably got about a decade left of opportunity, and then there's going to be a, a real curtailment of, of that area. So if you look ahead, I think Russia has a big challenge as to how it may, remains relevant. We all know how important it is to keep your eye on the money and not just your own. To follow trends, track financial situations, follow gains and losses, check out the Yahoo Finance podcast. Every day, we'll give you a quick overview of the latest market and financial news that you need to know. You'll be able to hear about the biggest headlines in the business world in three minutes or less, right after markets close. It's perfect to listen to while you make another cup of coffee or work out a new budget. Check it out now. Listen to Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts.
That's Yahoo Finance, wherever you get your podcasts. A Russian leader can stand on the tall walls of the Kremlin and gesture in almost any westward direction and point out historical victories over the Germans or the Poles or the Ottomans or the Austrians or the French. There is very little Russian land that has not seen war in the west of the country. A Russian leader looking east, though, may tell a different story. The east for Russia contains much more of a mixed bag. The Russian Navy still carries memories of naval battles like Tsushima, where the supposedly inferior Japanese Navy cataclysmically destroyed the Russian Navy in multiple battles. The Russian Army still recoils from memories of losing battles like Port Arthur. Even diplomatically, there remember defeats in this area of the world, like being strong-armed to sell Alaska to an ascendant USA in the fear that the British may just simply take it by force. Russia still has vivid memories of how many men they lost fighting the Japanese at the end of World War II, when Japan was supposedly at its weakest point. Analyzing conflicts like Sakhalin that cost the Russian dearly for minimal gains. Planners in the Kremlin are keenly aware of the immense difficulties of conducting warfare in the Far East. Planning a strategy for how to tackle these has become a mainstay in Russian planners' minds especially as much of the Russian Far East infrastructure was built during the Soviet era. At the time of construction, these new facilities were fairly formidable. But what are they like today? With a lack of upkeep since the breakdown of the Soviet Union, are Russia's eastern forces something strong enough to reassert themselves in this theater? Or are Russia set to play second fiddle in their own backyard? Well, for that, we turn to our second guest. Part 2 blowing off the cobwebs. Russia doesn't have much power projection force in the region. It has a very small Pacific fleet, if we're talking about the Navy here, because Russia isn't really a Pacific power in the sense that, you know, the US is, for example. I mean, you have the Russian Far East, which has a very long border with China. So obviously there's a need to defend that border. Russia has... Um, has obviously forces to defend that border. Essentially, I would really say that the Pacific Fleet isn't what you'd call a blue water fleet. Natasha Kurt is from the Department of War Studies at King's College London, specialising in Russia and its outlying regions, such as Central Asia and the Far East. And we're thrilled to have Natasha on the show today. Well, there's not enough money to go around, but also it's, not, it's no longer of, of major strategic importance to Russia. I mean, Russia isn't really a Pacific power. You know, Russia is still really more of a, a European power. Most of its military force projection and so on is focused on Western Europe. It has modernised its armed forces in the Far East. I think in many areas it's just been replacing obsolete equipment. It hasn't necessarily been going beyond that. And, um, and so really it's more that it's less of an important theatre for Russia. Well, you mentioned China there, so how would you sum up the relationship between Beijing and Moscow in this area of the world? Why, for instance, is Russia running large-scale patrols with China right off the coast of Japan? Essentially, it doesn't really cost Russia much to do these patrols. It's a signal, I think, to, to countries like Japan, which do have territorial claims against Russia, that Russia is able to partner up for example, with China, and that this partnership is more than just about Central Asia, for example, that Russia also is showing solidarity essentially with China in its bid to counter what it sees as a destructive uh, Indo-Pacific tilt by the US. Um, I mean, Russia has been very critical of this policy and has called it destructive. These patrols do send signals, and every time these patrols happen, Japan does, for example, react, obviously very negatively and angrily. You know, Russia's wagon is hitched so closely now to China that it kind of feels more comfortable doing this, um, whereas I think a few years ago it might not have done. We're seeing both the US and China setting up a series of bases and supply depots and refueling stations for their naval forces all around the Indo-Pacific in countries like Sri Lanka, Thailand, Japan, and Australia. Do you think we're going to start to see Russia also attempt to set up a series of new facilities around the Indo-Pacific? 
Russia already has a base in Vietnam. Um, the old Cameron Bay base has been revitalized, so it's using that. But its presence in Vietnam is not is still fairly marginal. And I don't think that Russia has any plans for Cambodia that I know of. I think that Russia will kind of focus on supporting China, if only symbolically, because it doesn't necessarily cost Russia very much to do that. I don't think it seeks to particularly expand, given Russia's focus on China and the economic benefits that its relationship with China brings. I don't think that there are other opportunities that could really match its relationship with China economically at the moment. You know, it does diversify, it has diversified a little bit in terms of LNG, for example, LNG deliveries. Um, and, it, and it supplies weapons to Vietnam, also to India, of course. I mean, India is the more important actor. You know, I think the relationship with India is really um, quite complex in the sense that Obviously, India is a member of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization now. But on the other hand, Russia, of course, um, resents India's role um, in the Indo-Pacific. You know, India being, if you like, groomed by the US to be this beacon of democracy and so on. I mean, Russia, first of all, if in a sense, tries to deny the validity of the Indo-Pacific concept. You know, Russia, um, Lavrov has says, has said we prefer to call it the Asia-Pacific region, um, clearly because, you know, of this reluctance to see India included there. And Russia has also, of course, railed against AUKUS. So I think what Russia seeks to do is more to perhaps limit what the US can do, although personally I think the US has already limited uh, what it can do there by actually not doing very much itself. I think it's quite easy for Russia and China to, to cause tensions by doing, you know, even just with small scale patrols and so on, um, partly because I don't, I think that although, you know, the US talks a lot about Indo-Pacific and now AUKUS, I don't think that the US has actually done very much. So Russia has recently brought in a new deployment of Russian submarines to the Pacific fleet. Do you think this signals a change in the Russian doctrine in this area of the world? The more advanced uh, submarines have gone to the Black Sea and the Northern Fleet. And so the Black, the Pacific Fleet did was allocated to submarines, but these submarines are, you know, not, not the newer generation submarines. So I think the answer is probably no. What do you think it would take for the Russians to take their Pacific Fleet as seriously as, let's say, their Northern or Black Sea fleets? Perhaps if the European theatre became concomitantly less important, which I don't think it, it will. I mean, you know, clearly the Pacific Fleet is, you know, the kind of mainstay of Russia's military presence in, in Northeast Asia. But I would say that for Russia, it's more about Northeast Asia, right? It's not really about the Pacific. As I mentioned before, um, there is a kind of connection, if you like, between um, the Northern Fleet and the Pacific Fleet. And you know, they do, people do refer to both of those fleets as swing fleets. Um, so um, essentially, obviously, with the Northern Sea Route, that increases the significance of the Northern Fleet. Um, and so it's possible that Arctic missions could spill over into the North Pacific. Um, so that might be a way in which, um, you know, the Pacific Fleet uh, perhaps might need to be kind of revitalized might need to be um, strengthened um, you know because of the northern sea sea route um, which obviously offers Russia the possibility to diversify energy supplies to other Asian clients potentially um, and it also increases further um, the strategic importance of the Kuril Islands to Russia Russia has only so much money and might to really go around. Many people tend not to know this, but Russia's GDP is roughly the size of Australia's. And I don't think many people worry about Australia invading multiple large countries at once. For now, Russia is prioritizing its Western assets, concentrating its forces on the external pressure points like Ukraine, the Baltics, Central Asia, and the Caucasus. But what would it take for Russia to reshift its focus eastwards? If Russia finally decided that it's very unlikely that NATO would ever invade them, 
wouldn't that free up multiple army groups to move eastwards? To join the theatre that is now the focal point of much of the world's geopolitical analysis? Can Russia be the one to tip the balance of power in the new East Asia battle space? Well, to answer that, we turn to our third guest. Part 3. A Paralyzed Partner So I think that Russia's approach to the Pacific is one in which it's trying to manage the fact that it has core national security interests in the Pacific, but it's a very different region than, say, Eastern Europe, and that's largely because of China. And so for Russia, it's a matter of, of protecting core national interests, remaining a, a key player in the region, while also managing its relationship with China, who is arguably, obviously, the, the, the more powerful uh, country in the region. And so there's a there's a balancing act there between asserting Russian interests and then managing uh, China's interest, I would say. Jeffrey Edmonds is an expert on Russia and Eurasia for CNA. Jeffrey also served as the director for Russia on the National Security Council and acting senior director for Russia during the Obama administration. Prior to the National Security Council, Edmonds also served as a military analyst for the CIA covering Eurasian militaries. We're thrilled to have Jeff on the show today. So they do take it seriously, but that being said, there is, a, in a certain sense, a, a hierarchy as far as modernization goes. The Northern Fleet obviously has, has, a, has a number of new ships and submarines. There's been a lot of emphasis on the Black Sea Fleet because of its role in the Black Sea region and in the Eastern Mediterranean. Uh, where we've seen most of the modernization in the Pacific Fleet is with the um, Ballistic Missile Force. You know, they're part of their, their strategic deterrence there with, I believe, now two Bori-class SSBNs. So they, they did ensure that, that that part of the fleet is still staying viable. Um, I know there are plans to modernize the Pacific fleet in the same way they've done with the, with the uh, Black Sea and, and, the, and the Northern. And so I know that there are orders for um, both nuclear submarines, conventional submarines, surface ships, but um, it, it is lagging behind the other fleets, I would say. There's also an infrastructure issue that they've been working on for a number of years. It, the Pacific Fleet, more than, say, the Northern Fleet, had um, deteriorating infrastructure that they've been trying to repair for some time now. And what is the main reason the infrastructure out in the Pacific continues to be neglected? Is it just that Russia doesn't have a lot of spare money lying around at the moment, or is it something deeper here? I mean, the Russian defense spending is often misunderstood in that, you know, they, they buy things in rubles and not in, in dollars. And so the, their defense spending is generally higher than you think it is. But that being said, even, I mean, even that being said, there's still a higher, there's still a, a priority list, if you will, because they can't, they they don't have the ability to just ramp up everything, modernize everything at one time, and so you'll see them. I mean, they do this within the navy. They also do it within the Russian military, where they might focus on aerospace forces, or they might focus on the navy, or switch to the ground forces, depending on how what their assessments are of where these different units, these different parts of the Russian military are compared to where they want them to be. And so I think that in, in, in a, you know in the beginning in the in the earlier years of modernization, the Pacific Fleet was more of an economy of force kind of mission. It was, you know, maintain the strategic deterrence, but we have to kind of focus on other areas before we're able to take these new classes of ships and build them for the Pacific Fleet. So we've been monitoring the Russians moving lots of equipment, particularly nuclear ballistic missiles, from sites in the Far East and redeploying them to the Kola Peninsula right near Finland. Do you think there's a reason we're seeing Russia moving more and more of its specialized equipment and forces westwards and out of the eastern theaters? Well, I mean, I think the ballistic missile launches are, that's, that's more of a, I don't know that's a simulation for striking something in the, in the west. That might be just a pragmatic approach. If you have to launch a ballistic missile to test something in the Pacific fleet, the only, way, only place you're going to launch it is west over Russia, not towards the United States, obviously. The Pacific fleet is still going to, to be a lower priority than, say, the Black Sea Fleet, for example. The, the strategic situation for Russia in the Pacific is very different than it is in, in Eastern Europe. For Eastern Europe and the Black Sea region, you know, think about the Ukraine crisis right now. Russia has a pretty solid narrative, understand how it wants to change the security arrangements, and has a pretty clear idea of those activities it, it will and will not tolerate, i.e., uh, e.g., Ukraine. Whereas in the Pacific, it's not as clear, at least in my opinion, it's not as clear where Russia's core interests are. It knows that it has core interests there. 
it has a strategic deterrence there. But when you take something like Korea, for example, they have to take a backseat to China. Um, they have a complicated relationship with Japan that they have to balance with China. They have a complicated relationship with India that they have to balance with China. So it's not, I mean, Russia is more of a status quo power in the Pacific and a revisionist power in Europe. And so those are two very different uh, strategic approaches to those regions. And so I think that for the Russians, especially right now, the more pressing security issue is their perceived increase in NATO and U.S. presence in places like Ukraine and Georgia um, and, you know, NATO infrastructure in Europe in general. So I think that's going to that in the Black Sea region. They've gotten very sensitive over the last year about U.S. about an increased U.S. presence in the Black Sea region. So I think those threats, those perceptions of those threats are going to take front seat compared to what they see in the Pacific. Before we get into the relationship between Russia and Japan, I want to talk a little bit about the Bering Strait. With climate change causing a receding in the Arctic ice and the northern passages slowly opening, do you think Moscow will start to place more of a priority into the Pacific entrances into the Strait? Yes, I, I do. I think sometimes people underestimate how much they are concerned about what they think is going to be the next big competition for scarce resources, and that's going to be a competition in the Arctic, um, all across the Arctic. And so in the earlier years of modernization, you would see them kind of calibrate how much they would modernize their Arctic forces along the Northern Sea Route. I'd say within the last couple of years, you've really seen an increase in that and, a, and more of a solidified approach to the Arctic region. They really do anticipate having to manage traffic and international competition there. And they want to make sure that they are they are number one in that region. Um, it's interesting that when the when the UK um, here's an issue again though in the Pacific, there's this weird relationship with China and the Arctic. When the United Kingdom announced its Arctic strategy, the Russians were apoplectic and really upset about that. Yet when China launched its Arctic strategy, even though it's not an Arctic nation, um, there was real of silence. You heard some complaining at lower military ranks, but in general, there was silence. And so I think it's going to be interesting in the Arctic to see how the Russians manage uh, Chinese presence there. It'll also be interesting to see just in general how much the northern route is actually used um, and how much, I mean, how how feasible it is for Russia to manage that. So that's, but they are certainly positioning themselves with their nuclear icebreakers. You know, each year they send either a Pacific fleet, you know, towards the Northern fleet or the Northern fleet towards the Pacific fleet. And so they are, you know, they have, they have missile defense infrastructure there, early warning radars there, coastal defense systems, uh, things like that. So they're definitely preparing to be able to assert themselves and assert their interests in the Arctic. And is the U.S. placing similar emphasis on the Arctic forces and the Arctic bases and building up their icebreaker fleet to match the Russians? Or frankly, is the U.S. a bit behind the eight ball when it comes to the Arctic theater? Yeah, I think it's an ongoing conversation, to be honest with you. I, we, when I was in the, the Obama administration during and right after Crimea, you know, there was kind of this, this impulse desire sometimes to just, just counter Russia wherever they are. Um, but there's an ongoing debate, like how much is, is the Northern Sea Route a core national interest of the United States? Do we need to have nuclear icebreakers and things of that nature? I mean, we have none that I, I'm aware. I don't think we have any. We might have one icebreaker. Um, I have to check that. But so far, as far as procurement goes, it doesn't look like it's a major, major issue for us. We have attempted to operate further north. I mean, we sent a carrier group, I guess this was two or three years ago, up north. That was more about focusing on on exacting costs from the Russian Navy than it was about being in the Arctic. Of course, the Russians interpreted that as us. They assume that we are planning to be in the Arctic in a big way. And I, I think that might be a false assumption. I think that there are certain people, you know, there, there are certain people, certain foreign policy experts in the United States that think we should be in the Arctic. Um, and then certain other ones that, you know, there's another voice out there that says, really, it's not really... The Northern Sea Route's really not a core national security interest. Why would we um, expend resources on on trying to be there when all that would do was is really um, antagonize Russia? And are Russia looking to put the really good equipment up in the Arctic, or is it really just keeping the lights on in some of these old Soviet facilities? No, they actually they just improved one of their their runways there recently, and one of their main main outposts there. They're they're building the infrastructure to be able to maintain an air presence there. But they also, going back into the, the Cold War, have interceptors 
that you know practiced flying from bases in the Coral Peninsula and other places in Russia over the Arctic very quickly because they they identify that as a potential avenue of approach for U.S. bombers, and so they've always focused on being able to get an air presence over the Arctic as quickly as they, they can. And a lot of those interceptors have been modernized. Um, they're they're getting new longer range air-to-air missiles and again like i said there's also the air defense network that's there there's the early warning radar that's there so the capability there while it was you know fairly deteriorated after the end of the cold war has only gotten stronger and so i think that's a that's a trend you're going to continue to see so we talked a bit about this in our japan piece a few months ago but to catch everyone up in the closing days of world war ii the ussr declared war on japan by joining the war on the victorious side territorial concessions were given to the USSR. And in addition to administering half of the Korean peninsula, the Russians were given the large island of Sakhalin and the Kuril Islands, a chain of islands stretching from the tip of the Kanchatka Peninsula all the way down to the north edge of Japan. This means the Russians have air bases, artillery, paratroopers, and missile platforms just 25 kilometers off the Japanese coast. These islands have been a point of contention between Moscow and Tokyo for decades now, but how did it shape the relationship between these two countries tonight? I think the Kuril Islands, or the, you know, as the Japanese refer to them as the Northern Territories, are extremely important because they help protect the bastions that the that SSBNs operate in uh, to the west of the Kurils. What's interesting is, you know, in Japan they have a holiday for the Northern Territories each year, and for many years in a row, Russia would conduct an amphibious operation onto the Kuril Islands on that day to send a signal to the Japanese that, that the Russians are prepared to defend those islands. Um, and they have various infrastructure, coastal missile defense, air defense, things of that nature there. And I think that in any, any conflict, um, you would have that the Kuril Islands form like a natural barrier to what they would perceive to be U.S. naval efforts to get inside the Sievacolts to challenge the bastion or, or what have you. So you would have a ring of, of conventional nuclear submarines outside of the Kuril Islands. Um, but I know they're definitely worried about choke points. Again, it is it is a more difficult area for them to operate in. And they do have this complicated relationship with Japan where they're interested in economic ties. But at the same time, there is this disputed territory. I mean, during the Obama administration after Crimea and eastern Ukraine, there was a, really a policy of isolation with Russia. And the, the, the Russians used the prospect of some kind of deal about the Kuril Islands to get the Japanese to engage the Russians during this time when we were trying to get everybody to isolate Russia. So they've used it in, in various aspects. But I, in my opinion, I know I see the Russians, you know, being willing to go to the, the, the floor for for the Kuril Islands. It's very important militarily uh, to protect the uh, bastions and, and their other critical military infrastructure in the region. During the Cold War, Russia had an entire network of friendly bases and ports throughout this region of the world. Do you think Moscow will be able to rebuild these military networks and reach those goals again? Well, this is this is a long-term trend in the Russian Navy. And so they don't have, obviously, the logistics train that the U.S. Navy has. And so what they rely on are simplified port agreements. Um, they've wanted to establish, I mean, for example, TARDIS in the Eastern European, Eastern Mediterranean. Um, it's technically not a base. We call, they call them logistical supply points. But they want this kind of like simple infrastructure in various places, these logistical supply points, um, so that they can so that they can better support their navy abroad. There was an attempt um, some years ago. The Russians were hoping to or, or hoping to reestablish one of these points in Cameron Bay in Vietnam, and the Vietnamese were pretty pretty um, adamant that that Cameron Bay is going to be a you know an area of, of international presence. And so they, they do not want to favor one country over another in that region. And so I don't know if the Russians currently have a simplified port agreement there, but they will they will take these agreements wherever they can, um, whether that's in the Pacific or in the, the Mediterranean. And that's one of the ways in which they, they hope to project naval power. Russia has been trying to reach out to some of these small Pacific Island nations, looking to hopefully gain national recognition for some of their Russia-reliant breakaway saints like Transnistria, South Ossetia, and Abkhazia. Do you think that's all the Russians are looking for out here, or do they have a solidified diplomatic strategy for these small Pacific Island nations? No, I think they do. I mean, I think the Russians have a have a diplomatic, an, or, you know, kind of take it on a diplomatic initiative, especially since Syria, and just especially since you kind of 
the 2014 and on time frame where you, you see them reaching out to you know Southeast Asia, Pacific, Latin America, Africa. They have different interests in each area. What I would caution is that, for example, we did a big study on Russian influence in Latin America. And often when you when you dig into it a bit, there's a lot of there's a lot of publicity, there are some agreements, and there's it's usually not a whole bunch of substance. It's not always very clear what the Russians can actually bring to the table. Um, I mean, for example, in Africa, they're they're using different various security, you know, paramilitary forces to pursue certain economic interests and some political stuff. But in general, you take take the Pacific, it's it's not very clear what the Russians are offering. But their perspective is that because at least what they claim is that unlike the United States, they're not demanding that countries be any particular way, right? Like in take the Middle East, for example, they're they're willing to talk to the Syrians and the Israelis, the Israelis and the Saudi Arabians, the Iranians and Saudi Arabia. So they they try to position themselves as a neutral key player. And that's what I think they're doing in Southeast Asia. They're doing that in the in the Pacific is that, hey, Russia is a global player. They're a power. They're not the power in the Pacific, but they are a power in the Pacific. And that Russia plays a useful role um, in managing international issues and positioning themselves as a as an alternative to the United States. Um, if you know if they perceive that the United States is not paying attention or reaching out to a certain area, they will certainly try to fill that void. But again, the question is, what do they actually bring to the table when they do that? The concept of power competition brings us quite nicely to our main theme here. And with China looking to assert itself in quite a forward manner, how would you sum up the relationship between China and Russia in 2022? So what I think is interesting that most people don't understand is that is that the, the rapprochement between Russia and China is one of the longest, most consistent trends in Russian foreign policy. This goes back into the Cold War. They believe that the, that the time of tension and the small border war that they had, border conflict that they had, was really a detraction from the real threat, which was Europe. And so they have always wanted to rebuild that relationship. And I think, you know, right now they have a very, very significant strategic overlap. Um, I don't see them forming like a military alliance, but I do think it's much more. It's I don't think it's a transactional relationship, but I think it's a very genuine relationship. Um, They tend to be a little hyperbolic about the Russians that I talk to. It's almost as if they were giving talking points from the Kremlin saying, hey, you need to communicate to everybody that there is no space between China and Russia. And it is driven largely by the leadership, but this is a very significant relationship. You look at their uh, cooperation in space, you look at their their joint military exercises. I mean, they're not, I don't think they're approaching interoperability in the same way that NATO is. I mean, that's a very hard thing to do, but I think they're definitely saying that, you know, they, they pose an alternative to the United States. Um, they share more of this polycentric slash multipolar worldview and and they believe that together they might be able to bring that about it'll be interesting to see down the line how the russians manage this relationship um, i think under the surface there is some concern about what role they will play i i don't think china treats russia like a um like a little brother or whatever analogy you want to use there uh, i think there's there's some mutual respect there the other trend we've started seeing is that, uh, you know, uh, it seems like a lot of their cooperation is, is becoming more, not subdued is, is the wrong word. I would say they're not publicizing or it, it it's the perception of Russian analysts that a lot of this cooperation has moved into kind of a classified space, which probably indicates deeper, more classified or just more secretive work together. But, you know, these, these big initiatives like, ballistic missile warning radars and things of that nature, just really, you know, signal a very long-term, deep strategic um, relationship between the two countries. When Russia does exercise in the West near the Ukrainian border, they're quite bombastic about it. They highly publicize mass troop movements. They bring stations like RT down to film. They want the world to know they're massing on the Ukrainian border. But when it comes to running ops in the East though, they're much more reserved. There's much less fanfare. And frankly, quite often it goes under everyone's radar. So why the major difference in optics for Russia here between with the Western front and the Eastern front? So that's an interesting point. If, if, and there's an example of what you're talking about. When you look at the Vostok, you know, the, the, each year Russia has a large strategic exercise in one of its strategic directions. 
um, this past year was towards Europe. A couple years ago, it was towards you know in the direction of of the Pacific. What's interesting when you look at the other the the other strategic exercises that are not in the Pacific, they've been very geographically oriented. So, for example, the European one was clearly about a fight in Europe. The one in the Pacific with the Chinese a couple years ago was not very geographically specific. Um, it was more of a blue force versus red force, a kind of neutral. It actually looked much more like like strategic exercises during the Soviet Union, and it's not totally clear, but I know that a number of analysts and myself believe that part of the reason for that is that is that they don't have completely overlapping security interests in the Pacific. Um, China is very revisionist in the Pacific and Russia is not. And so Russia doesn't necessarily want to be seen as preparing for an invasion of Japan, for example. And so I think that that may be part of why there is less publicity. Although I will say it does seem as though that publicity is increasing. Um, a real interesting data point is the the violation of of airspace. I forget what year this was, but it was it's the island claimed by both Japan and South Korea. Um, the Russians and the Chinese on a joint strategic patrol, aircraft patrol, a bomber patrol, violated that airspace. And the Russians came back and violated it a number of times, which was an it was one data point, but it was interesting in that what I think people need to watch out for. It are, are opportunities for the Russians to to pay political cost in order to show that they are um, together with the Chinese, right? That shows kind of a a moving away of what from what I just described, where they're being more sensitive about their different relationships in the region to more of a those take a backseat to their relationship with China. So I think that's an interesting trend that we'll have to watch going forward. Well, how far is Russia willing to go in that relationship with China? If, let's say, a conflict was to break out over Taiwan, would Russia come to the aid of Beijing? That's um, that's a really interesting question and something we've we've talked about quite a bit. I would imagine that there would be some level of support to China, but I don't think it would be a hard military kind of support. I think it might be intelligence um, and things of that nature. So I would I would be surprised. I don't think Russia is going to start deploying combined arms armies, you know, into China, you know, like or, or naval forces into conflict with the United States and China over Taiwan. I could be wrong there. I mean, this is a very speculative um, situation that I know that I know that the administration is looking at, at carefully. Um, I think they would want to. I think that the narrative is that they would want to they would support China. But I think it's unclear as to how much they would actually provide military support. I'm, I'd be quite confident they would provide um, intelligence support, intelligence planning, things of that nature, advising. I, I definitely think they, I, I'm pretty, pretty solid on the idea that they would provide that kind of support. The age-old problem for Russia is naval choke points. For the Black Sea Fleet, they have to pass through the Bosphorus Strait, which is in the heart of Istanbul and only a few kilometers wide. The Baltic fleet has to pass through the thin choke point between Denmark and Sweden. The Caspian fleet is landlocked. And even the northern fleet has to pass through a NATO killing zone between Greenland, Iceland, and Scotland. The Russian ports in Magadan, though, the downwards pointy peninsula bit in the very east of Russia, all head directly out into the open ocean, where it would be much harder to track down Russian attack subs. So why don't the Russians simply base their fleets out of somewhere like Petropavlovsk, then be forced to run a series of NATO gauntlets with their bases in the West? Well, again, I think it's the issue of, of where does Russia see the, the biggest threat? And for and I think that's in Europe, right? That's that's you know the, the that's the Atlantic, that's the Baltic, that's the Black Sea region. That is a is a much higher threat. I don't think the Russians think we're we're coming for them in the Pacific. Um, they are very much worried about NATO presence in Europe and especially Eastern Europe. And so I think that that's that's, again, why the Pacific fleet, because, I mean, if you have them in the, you know, if you have them in in the, in the Pacific, the amount of time it would take for them to get to, you know, if there was a theater of war, if there was a conflict in a, in a particular theater like Europe, it's not it's not clear how useful they would be. Unless they wanted to horizontally escalate and start fighting in the Pacific, which probably would not be advisable because that's obviously where the United States has quite a bit of naval power. Um, that being said, I mean, they do have have submarines that they send out on patrols, um, you know, throughout the Pacific. And so it's not as if they don't have those things there. 
and I don't want to make it sound weak. I just, I, there, it doesn't receive the same priority because it's not the same kind of threat. So what would it take to make the Russians take the Pacific front as seriously as some of their other ones? You know, with the eyes of the world pivoting to Asia and the Pacific, will Moscow follow that trend? I mean, there are a couple of reasons you could, the Russians could shift focus. If they feel that tensions in Europe and, and what they want in Europe, they're getting more of what they want in Europe. Um, that could lead them to say, okay, now we've got some resources we could focus on the Pacific. But again, and I think they are focusing, I mean, not focusing, but they are working to modernize the, the Pacific fleet. It's just not as fast as others. So I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't say it's an either or kind of situation. I think it's just taking a bit longer. But with the, the ships that they're, they're, they're producing now, and the, the, especially the conventional submarines and the, you know, the, the separate events, because obviously a very capable nuclear submarine, I think it's just a matter of time before the Pacific fleet, you know, gets up to, to, to not par, but, you know, sees a significant increase in military capability. Of what size do you think we should be on the lookout for that Russia is pivoting its attention eastwards over the future? Yeah, I think the most interesting thing to watch is, is how much Russia is willing to pay political capital to signal to the region that it's with China and how much it falls behind China these things. Like, is it willing to jeopardize its relationship with Japan for China? That's an indicator, right? Um, as to as to the depth of the relationship. So I think that's probably one of the key things to watch. Um, I do think, obviously, we need to watch Russian modernization of the Pacific fleet, because I think that is continuing. And these, you know, these, these port agreements are something that you know, is going to enable the Russian Navy to get out there more often. The, the combination of, of port agreements, new platforms, we have to remember all of these platforms, wherever they're located in, the, in Europe, Mediterranean, or Pacific, now have a long-range strike capability that the Russian Navy didn't have prior to 2012, right? And so that, that kind of changes. You, know, you don't have to be as far from Russia's borders if you're a Russian ship in order to really have a strategic impact on um, critical infrastructure or naval assets or what have you. And so any of these new, any of these new production platforms in a certain way have an outsized impact on Russian military capability because they really are bringing new technologies to bear you know, each year. A good friend of mine's parents bought a cheap investment property in one of the rundown suburbs of my city back in the 1960s. They put minimal work into it over the years and just kept it as a low rent investment home for decades. Because at the time, it was in a pretty shoddy part of town. But fast forwarding decades, the property market in my city has dramatically changed. And although the house never moved, the city did. What were once middle of nowhere suburbs have been gentrified into lively, full of bar nightlife areas. Just by being in that location, my friend's parents are sitting on crucial property. And I think that's a pretty good analogy for Russia here. When Russia annexed Vladivostok from China in 1858, they had no idea that this area in East Asia would become one day the center for international trade and the new front line for global superpowers. Vladivostok never moved, but the geopolitical center of gravity in the world did. And now Russia, because of decisions made centuries ago, has stakes in conflicts like the South China Sea, the East Asia Sea, the Korean Peninsula, the Arctic entrances, and even far-flung Pacific islands. For now, the Kremlin's gaze still remains firmly westward, but that will begin to change as rivals like the US move their attention toward China and East Asia. It may be too early to say for now, but it looks like because of Russian maneuvers in the 1850s, Moscow now has a front row seat to the main battleground of the 21st century. Thank you so much for tuning into the show this week. This is our last episode of the year, and what a year it's been. We crossed over the million stream mark just before Christmas Eve last year, and even that seems out of this world for me. But as I write this, just one year on, we're closing it on the 4 million stream mark, and that has 100% been thanks to all of your support and dedication for the show. We have no idea what 2022 might bring for the world, and for the sake of all of us, I really hope things do improve for everybody. But even in this crazy, stressful, testing times that are 2020 and 2021, 
This audience has been absolutely amazing and we cannot thank each and every one of you enough for all of your support. So goodbye 2021 and hello to 2022 here at the Roadline. The next year of us will be even busier than the last one, creating extra analysis, a special mini-series, and more content on our website, as well as the usual bunch of events and bonuses, the details of which can all be found on our website, theredlinepodcast.com. To make sure you don't miss anything or to keep up to date with everything we have coming out, you'll find all of our links and info on Twitter, Reddit, Instagram, Facebook, Discord, and TikTok on the handle at theredlinepod. Or if you're keen to follow me on Twitter, I'm on the handle at MikeElliotOz. Oz is in Australia. This episode is dedicated to a friend of the show, Alex Kirch, who is our latest patron to sign up as of time of recording. This show is only possible with the support of our amazing Patreons who donate a small amount of money each month to make sure we can keep this show going. And we really cannot thank them enough. So if you feel we can spare a couple of dollars, we would greatly appreciate it. So Alex, this episode of Russia's Pacific Doctrine is thanks to you. As usual, here are our three book recommendations. The first is Russian Expansion in the Pacific, 1641-1850, by Frank Alfred Golder, for a historical look on Russia's expansion eastwards. The second is Russia in the Indo-Pacific, New Approaches to Russian Foreign Policy, by Gay Christofferson, for a fantastic look at the new position Russia is in at the moment. And the last is Asia's Cauldron, from friend of the show Robert D. Kaplan, for an overview on the current unfolding dynamic in East Asia. I want to thank this week's guests, Neil Melvin, Natasha Kurt, and Jeffrey Edmonds. All of you were amazing to work with on this one, and we look forward to having you back on the show soon. I also want to thank my staff, Owen Swift, the producer, Daniela Zavella and Perry Grace, head research assistants and writers, Mark Spencer, our second voiceover artist, Ross Crabtree, our new media specialist, who's been helping us create and produce some amazing content for the show's new TikTok channel, Joe Hawthorne, our audio cleaner, Marissa Rafter, our videographer, Nick Much, our field correspondent, as well as Jonah Gunn and Robert Sutton, our new production assistants. I'm incredibly proud of the team we have here at the show, and I can't wait to see what we'll be achieving together in 2022. The Red Line will be back in another fortnight with another international episode. But until then, Merry Christmas, Happy New Year, and thank you for listening. Good night. The views and opinions expressed in this episode are solely those of Michael, our guests, and the Redline podcast. They do not represent any government or organization and are solely our own. For more information, please visit theredlinepodcast.com.